to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Genesis chapter 15 verses 1 to 21. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar the Damascus of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down to the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites and Jebusites. Okay, I think I will read the second reading during the uh, sermon. Let me just move things. Thank you. Um... We're starting a new sermon series this evening on the book of Exodus. That reading was not a mistake, though. You'll see why later on. Uh, We're going to be looking at Exodus for about nine weeks. And it is truly uh, one of the powerhouse books of the Old Testament. Uh, I hope you've read it before, but if you haven't, that's okay. Uh, It's the story of how the Creator God comes to save His people, the people of Israel, Uh, the descendants of Abraham, or as he was known in Genesis 15 when we read it there, Abram. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, And the book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible, uh, is the the 
the story of how God came into relationship with these people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and made incredible promises to them, uh, kind of founded Israel. Um, and Exodus is what follows on from that, and it is, it is a gripping story, incredibly powerful. And above all, as we'll see, it's the story of how God draws near to his people. At the beginning of Exodus, as we'll see tonight, God seems kind of distant, far off, kind of a little unknown. But by the end of the book of Exodus, he is, he's kind of so intimately present with them that it's dangerous. Exodus is the story of how God draws near to Israel. But, you know, we should ask at the beginning of the series, why does this matter to us? Uh, that may be all very interesting, kind of interesting ancient story, but why should we bother with it? Uh, this dramatic odd story from the Old Testament. How, how does it have anything to do with us here and now? Well, the answer, the answer that we need to keep in mind right through this series is that the God who draws near to Israel in Exodus is the same God who has drawn near to everyone in Jesus Christ and who draws near to us in his spirit by his word today. These things were written down, wrote the Apostle Paul, uh, referring to the events of Exodus. He said, these things were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. We read the Old Testament because this God, this strange and scary Lord of the Hebrew people, he is the God of Jesus Christ. The God who has made himself known to us all in Jesus. That's who he is. And if we want to know him, if we want to know the God of Jesus Christ, we can't ignore his backstory. Uh, and so I want to invite you to come with us as we read Exodus and meet again this God who draws near. And through this, come to see more fully and more wonderfully the God who is near to us now in Jesus Christ. Uh, well, let's begin at the beginning. I'd love you to turn to Exodus chapter 1. Uh, and this evening, we're actually going to read the whole of Exodus 1 and 2 in installments. I've asked Camilla to do the readings to make it more interesting as we go. So Camilla, come up. And uh, Exodus chapter 1 is in your Bibles on page... 55 under the heading Exodus. We'll begin at verse 1. These are the names of the son of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. These opening seven verses seem quite ordinary, uh, but they're really very significant. Uh, in a few sentences, we're moved from this kind of intimate family world of Genesis to a much wider picture of a huge people group in ancient Egypt. 
The emphasis here is on the numerical growth of the Israelites. We move really quickly from Jacob and his 12 sons to his 70 descendants and then to a great multitude. Uh, Verse 7, if you look at it there, actually kind of heaps up words to emphasize the vast number of the the Israelites. Uh, They were fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They became exceedingly numerous. The land was filled in them. You know, the point is there there were quite a lot of them. Uh, One of these Hebrew words will actually be used later to describe a plague of frogs. Now, if we'd read all the way from Genesis chapter 1, we couldn't miss the significance of this. This numerical growth represents a striking fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Uh, Abraham, as I said, was Israel's founding father. uh, And the story of the Bible really kicks off when God promises Abraham that he will make him into a great nation and bless him, uh, and through him bless the whole world. And in particular, God promises Abraham that he's going to have a lot of children. And we saw one of those versions in Genesis chapter 15, our Bible reading, where God takes Abraham outside and he says, look at the stars, that's your children. Um, so what we're meant to be seeing here at the beginning of Exodus, we're meant to hear that God's promises to Abraham are coming true. Israel is becoming a great nation. But there's more even than this, because behind even the story about Abraham, at the very beginning of the Bible, when God creates the world, he says in Genesis chapter 1 to humanity, he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And the words used here in Exodus of the Israelites are exactly the same. Uh, where it says filled the land, actually the word for land is the same, filled the earth. Uh, It's meant to be an echo of Genesis. And what we're meant to realize here, right at the beginning of Exodus, is that what's happening in this little nation in Egypt is, is nothing less than God's purposes for the world. God's recovery of the whole creation. There is a problem, though. Let's keep reading verse 8. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Well, if you remember in Genesis 15, God had also promised Abraham that his descendants would have a bad time. And here we see that fulfilled as well. Uh, The fruitfulness of the Israelites creates a kind of simmering ethnic tension. Uh, But unfortunately, the Israelites are powerless. Uh, Their place in society had been secure only when Joseph, or at least his memory, had kind of held sway. If you want to know more about Joseph, last 10 chapters of the book of Genesis are the place to go. 
Uh, Pharaoh, the, the new king of Egypt, he senses a mounting threat to his national security. And he responds by subjecting the Israelites to slave labor. Now, underneath this ethnic and political problem, there's a spiritual significance to this. See, what we're presented here is, is a deliberate and aggressive attempt to stop the purposes of God. Pharaoh represents here kind of human worldly power pitted against God and willing to deal in death in order to protect itself. And it must have been terrifying. We shouldn't kind of forget the human significance of this, the horror of this situation, the daily terror, the death of any possibility of, or prospects in life. The enormous loss of life this must have meant. The death of children. Slavery of any kind is awful. But this kind of slavery, where the aim is really to work people to death, this is utterly horrific. Um, we've seen kind of almost examples of this in, in, in some treatment of prisoners of war in the Second World War, uh, where kind of enormous roads uh, were built by basically having an army of prisoners who worked until they died. And it's normally a very effective way to squash people. Yet Pharaoh is strangely ineffective, isn't he? His attempts to squash the Israelites kind of backfire. They seem to grow in numbers nevertheless, and this fuels the tension even more, no doubt making the situation and their treatment even more brutal. Don't those words there, they work them ruthlessly. Don't they give us an inkling of so much. But it isn't working, and so Pharaoh ramps up his campaign. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. So, you know, this is a plan to systematically exterminate a people group by preventing them from having children with each other. Uh, if it had worked, Israel would have been no more within a couple of generations. Here we see political power at its most demonic, using its authority to command death and destruction in order to preserve its own rule. Yet, as, as we kind of notice on the way through, the story is almost comedic. Uh, because the king of Egypt, great, mighty, all-powerful Pharaoh, who was regarded as a god in his culture, uh, he is beaten by two feisty women who are named for us, Shifra and Pua. I like, I've been trying to work out all week how to pronounce P 
pure without just saying poo. Uh, and Camilla did it, and it's made me think about it again. So I'm sorry. But you know, these two women, Shifra and Pua, they're midwives. You know, these are not the heavy hitters of ancient world politics. Um, you may know some women like them. But you see, they just find a way not to do what Pharaoh tells them to do. And then they make up this story about the Israelites being vigorous, which was also just a kind of backhand insult to the Egyptians. And, you know, maybe what they said was only half a lie, right? Maybe they found a way to just delay entering the room at the right time or just turn their backs for a little while and, then you know, they turn around, oh, where's the baby? What baby? You know, but whatever actually happened, it's, it's basically a case of civil disobedience. Because there comes a time when laws lose their authority because they're wrong. And at the end of the day, these two brilliant women, they fear God and they respect his authority more than they do Pharaoh. And the narrative tells us that because of this, God was kind to the midwives. Uh, it's it's kind of nice, isn't it? Uh, but it's actually also a funny moment because I don't know if you noticed, it's actually the first thing we're told that God does in this story so far. And frankly, it's not that impressive. And it makes you suddenly register, kind of, hang on, where is God in all this? Why isn't he doing anything more decisive about this situation? Now, this question is left especially gripping because what we're left with here is Pharaoh ramping up his campaign by suddenly ordering not just the midwives but all his people to kill Israelite boys. Right? It didn't work with the midwives, so suddenly the, the Israelites are facing state-sanctioned genocide. Okay, so that kind of presses home the question, why isn't God doing more than this? Well, this is the stage on which Exodus is set. And now in chapter 2, we zoom in on the most central character, bar 1. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him. For three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. 
Well, suddenly again, we're taken from the big political picture down to an intimate family focus, and we see face to face the horrible personal reality of, of Pharaoh's policies as a mother is forced to cast away her baby in the desperate hope that her improvised lifeboat will somehow save him. And you know, how many other mothers must have been doing this? How much horrible suffering must there have been in Israelite homes? It is an horrific, outrageous wrong, this killing of the boys. And later in the book, it will come back to haunt the Egyptians horribly. Yet again, this particular part of the story has an almost comedic aspect to it. It's kind of ridiculously ironic. Pharaoh's plan is undermined from within his own family through the normal human kindness of his daughter, which, by the way, is a good reminder that not all the Egyptians were murderous. Being cast into the Nile becomes a source of life rather than death. Pharaoh's policy means that Moses' mother ends up getting to raise him after all, but with child support payments. And Pharaoh ends up sponsoring the education of the one who will one day bring down his kingdom. All of this hints that although God is not obviously present, in fact strangely absent in a way, he, he must still be there, behind the scenes, providentially and mysteriously working out his purposes. The name Moses means drawn out from the Hebrew is mashad, it means drawn out. And he's drawn out of the water. And in time, as well, he will be the one who leads the Israelites through the water. Yet his first appearance, as we'll see now, leaves us feeling uh, a little awkward about his status as a hero. First, verse 11, if you're following along. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were and he watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Yes, yeah, so Moses' first attempt to save Israel is, to be honest, not very successful. Uh, it's, it's kind of noble in a way. You know, he comes to the aid of the underdog, uh, he acts, he acts fairly decisively uh, for justice, uh, doesn't he? You know, we, we might think, oh, you know, killing bad, and that's, that's a good thing to think, but you know, this was a really horrible situation. Uh, Moses' heart, I think at this point we're meant to feel he's in the right place, but it's, he's not very effective because he ends up alone and disconnected on the run from the Egyptians and without the respect of his people. And so he flees and does the dramatic action of 
sitting down by a well. You know, what are we meant to make of this? Well, we're meant to see that Moses really has a long way to go yet. Uh, And that he is, in fact, not the champion that Israel needs most. Verse 16. Now priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Raul, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters, Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man, who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son. And Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. Well, here we see Moses again acting to defend the vulnerable. Uh, And and I think we're meant to like him. You know, these are great characteristics. As we'll see, they're actually God's characteristics. But again, it's clear that that things are really uncertain. You know, Moses has no idea what to do. Uh, He's even identified wrongly as an Egyptian. And we leave Moses in a funk, saying, I've become an alien in a foreign land. In fact, though, all of this is part of Moses' preparation. Uh, Again, here we see the quiet providence of God at work. Because in Midian, you see, Moses is going through the same experience that Israel is going through, that he'd kind of missed out on in Pharaoh's house of being lonely and a stranger and disconnected. He names his son after that experience. This time in Midian is actually preparing Moses to be Israel's leader. But all of this is only any use because Israel has a champion, far stronger than Moses, who until now has been in the background, but now right at the end of chapter 2, begins to enter. During that long period... The king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the turning point, uh, because suddenly we get a glimpse of the real hero of the story, preparing himself in the wings. Uh, This moment creates, I think, an incredibly dramatic sense of anticipation as we suddenly get a kind of sense of what's what's to come. Um, This may not be a helpful illustration, but who here has seen the first Hobbit movie? Uh, Oh, many of you, great. Okay, so in The Hobbit, the first instalment, the whole time they're heading towards the Lonely Mountain, right? And, And there's... The, the one who took over the Lonely Mountain is this dragon called Smaug. And they're, they're wondering whether Smaug is still alive. And there's this kind of tension. Will they be able to get back in? What will happen? Will the dragon still be there? And then right at the end of the first movie, you get taken inside the Lonely Mountain to the, and you see the hordes of gold. And then right the last scene, suddenly from under the gold, this eye opens. And you get this... You know, shiver runs through you. And then the second movie ruins it. But the first, 
you know, it's a great moment at the end of the first movie. And God is not smaug, but it, there is this sense of anticipation. Suddenly, we, we actually see what Pharaoh is dealing with. God readies himself here. What happens is that this period of suffering goes on for a long time and the Israelites cry out in desperation. That's actually emphasized. They groaned and cried because of their slavery. It was intolerable. They were dying. And then suddenly, when God has done almost nothing directly for two chapters, he's the subject of four verbs. He heard. He remembered, he looked, and he was concerned. Actually, that last verb is just, he knew. Suddenly, God is engaged in this situation in a new way. Why did it take him so long? Why does this only happen now? After all, this has been going on for a long time. It's not that God didn't register. It's not that he wasn't aware beforehand and suddenly notices, like he it turns out, ah, oh, you know, you left a pot on or something in the oven too long, and you think, yeah, crap. That's not how the Bible's God works. He doesn't forget things like that and then remember. No, the change in the way God is involved comes not because of change in him, but because of the developing situation. When it said God remembered his covenant covenant, it doesn't mean that he'd forgotten it. Uh, it means, and you know, forgotten that he made those promises at all. It means that things got to a point where the covenant suddenly became relevant in a new way. It's like I might, I hope I would, remember my promises to Lauren as her husband if somebody asked me out on a date. You know, suddenly there's this situation in which my promises become acutely relevant. It's not that I'd forgotten I was married, it's that the situation didn't kind of bring it into focus so, so kind of acutely. For whatever reason, God has been waiting, as he said he would back in Genesis 15 to Abraham. But now things get to a point where he is moved to act. The time has come. He prepares for battle. Well, this is how the book of Exodus begins. And I hope it's actually got you hooked. Uh, I hope you will take it upon yourself to read it over the coming weeks. Uh, you know, you could try and do it in the next couple of weeks if you fly through it. Or if you just read five chapters each week, less than one a day, uh, you would get through it before we finish the series. And you'll get heaps more out of it. Um, but before we finish this evening, let's just ask, what can we take home today from these opening chapters? Well, these opening chapters, I think, are a really good reminder of, of something about how God works and therefore what it means for how we should live. These chapters remind us of something that many of us have probably felt but that can easily throw you and can make you feel like there's something wrong. Sometimes God's timing is mysterious and difficult. Sometimes God seems painfully, inexplicably absent and distant. Sometimes God permits dreadful things to happen. 
and terrible evils to occur and to continue, he permits his people to suffer and violent men to throw their weight around. He permits death and pain and sometimes it feels like he doesn't even notice or care or do anything about it. But he does know and he does care. Though he seems absent, he is not. Like we see here, he is still present, providentially ordering things for good, bringing unexpected blessing out of the evil, working his purposes. That doesn't mean that what happens is not bad. And sometimes people feel like that. If, God, if God's kind of working his purposes through evil, then maybe it's actually all kind of okay. But actually what we see here is, is that it really is bad what's happening. And that's actually something we'll, Exodus will teach us more powerfully than we're probably ready for. Just because God will work his purposes out in the midst of evil and is sovereign over it, it doesn't make that evil good. No, Pharaoh will suffer for his crimes. But the point is that God is not absent, though it might seem that he is. He's there, and he hears the cries of his people and does not forget his promises. These opening chapters are also a really powerful reminder that God is faithful. He is faithful. To his promises. Even in the midst of the horror of slavery, Israel's growing numbers testify to his faithfulness. And then when the time had fully come, God turns again towards his people, and as we'll see over the coming weeks, he acts dramatically and decisively to save them. Friends, you can rely on the promise of God. The promises of God are more firm than anything in this world. He will keep his word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. And they can be for you, if you'll you'll let them be. They can be a source of utter bedrock security in your life as you make your way through the world. We can rely on his promises, his promises in Jesus Christ to save us Not to leave us, to be with us, to redeem us. And resting on them, even when God seems far off, we can have the strength to keep doing what is right. Nowhere do we see what that looks like better illustrated than in the courageous women who are the real heroes, humanly speaking, of these chapters. I think we should take special note of those midwives in chapter 1. We have a number of midwives at our church. It is a profession I regard with kind of great, as as greatly to be honoured. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And these, well, maybe not the actual doing of it, but that profession. And these midwives are a wonderful exemplar. But they're an example for all of us. Because they're people who feared God. They feared God and they refused to do what was evil, even though it must have been at the risk, it must have been at the risk of their lives. But these women loved God and they trusted Him more than they feared Pharaoh, more than they feared death. 
And so even though it seemed hopeless, and they must have felt terribly alone and scared, they did what was good and right. And so these women, this is a beautiful thing, these women, Shifra and Puah, they're named. They're named, and their names are remembered in eternity. While Pharaoh, powerful Pharaoh, remains nameless, just a symbol of evil. I think we need to note these women and study them and take their example to heart. Because there may well be times when being a Christian is a lot like their experience. In one way or another, times when we are asked, even ordered, to do evil. We actually may not have to reach very far from their occupation, for examples. Christian medical professionals, doctors, nurses, midwives, struggle today with issues not too far from what we see here. Increasingly, there are calls to regularise the abortion of disabled fetuses. There are medical ethicists who argue that severely disabled infants should be killed even after birth. In the UK, doctors have lost their licences for refusing to assist people in obtaining abortions. It may not be long before Christians in our society have to face very difficult decisions to do what is right. But what we're called to do is to trust God and do good, to regard his word as more definitive and important than any other, and to bank on him. We may suffer, but he has not abandoned us and we will not in the end be disappointed. But you know, we as Christians know much more even than these guys did here. We know much more because we know why it's like this. We know why being a Christian so often is about persevering in the face of difficulty and persevering when God seems far away and when the odds seem stupid. You know why? Because God is the God of the cross. The God who, as 1 Corinthians puts it, the God who chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, who chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing the things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He, says Paul, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God is the God who saves by dying in humiliation on the cross. And so the life of his people is going to be the life of the cross. So that our assumptions about power and success might be turned on their head and God might have the glory. So let me urge you to press on, to put your trust in Jesus Christ and God's promises and persevere in doing what is right, whatever your situation, knowing that God will not, in the end, let you down ever. Let's pray.
Our Father, we praise you for your faithfulness, your faithfulness to Israel, your faithfulness to your son Jesus, your faithfulness to us. And we praise you that you are the God who shames the strong by choosing what is weak in the world. Lord, have mercy on us. And when we struggle and when we feel like you are far away and when things are difficult, enable us, please, to keep trusting in your word and seeking to do what is right. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.